Thank you, Chris, for, for leading us, though, in those time of announcements, helping us know what's going on in the life of the church, helping us get plugged in. Before I start, I, I, just, uh, I just wanted to let you all know uh, just how grateful I am for you, for you, the church body, the church family of, uh, of, of Christ. Uh, I'm so grateful for all of you. I know many of you, uh, you do serve in many different ways uh, within the church, and um, at times, it can be draining, and it can be very, very tiring, and uh, I'm just so thankful for how you guys faithfully serve in so many different ways here at this church. And uh, for those of you who are just joining in and you're a part of our body, uh, we are really excited to have you with us, and uh, we would encourage you to, uh, to join us uh, as we endeavor together to, um, to spur each other on towards loving good deeds uh, here at the church. It's part of uh, our, our, our duty as a, as a church family. And um, so, yeah, I'm just really excited, though, uh, for just how so many of you, uh, just looking at the room, I want to say, like, I don't know, 90, 95% of you all are, are actively serving in some capacity. And I'm really, really grateful for you. Um, that's a pretty high number. Right. Uh, it's a really high number, so I'm grateful for you guys uh, for whether it's the uh, whether it's joining in an official ministry, teaching something, or even if you're just meeting up with someone individually. I want to encourage you, keep up the good work, right? Excel still more. I'm really, really grateful for you all. Uh, this church wouldn't be the church that it is without you, and so we're really grateful for you. And um, and also since they're not here, I can embarrass them a little bit. Um, Really grateful for our brothers, uh, Alex and Eric. They serve us faithfully uh, for the longest time. They're, they're finally getting some help. And so for those of you who are stepping up and helping out, we're very grateful for you too uh, and uh, how you're helping us even plan some of these, uh, some of these um, more spontaneous events. But uh, our brothers, Alex and Eric, you know, they, they tirelessly serve and, um, and, and they uh, really just um, sacrifice of themselves to minister to us to help keep Pastor Ray and me in check and in, on schedule and everything like that. So, um, yeah, I just want to uh, acknowledge them to you all this, uh, this evening so that uh, we can give thanks to God for them um, and uh, just uh, keep them in prayer as they're uh, getting a little bit of rest, um, planned rest. And, uh, yeah, you can continue to pray for our brother Pastor Ray uh, and his family because um, they're busy too. So, um, and, and they work very hard for us as well. So I uh, just wanted to express some thankfulness uh, to you all, um, for you all and for some of the, the, our, our leaders who, who do sacrifice so much. Um, with that being said, though, it is really a joy to be here together, to sing together, uh, and now to uh, worship the Lord together as we look at his word and as we spend time uh, together also. Um, and I know it can be hard, too, after a, a long work week. And, uh, you know, you've, you've heard me sing, and now you're hearing me preach. And I would not blame you at all if you decided that you're going to go fall asleep in the middle of the sermon. Um, but I'm really grateful, though, for all of you uh, just being here, wanting to fellowship, right? That's, that really is the difference in the life of a healthy church, right? That we want to be together, that we want to spend time together and uh, to, to care for one another. And so this evening, uh, we're going to look at the book of Mark. We're continuing our series in the book of Mark. We're looking at Mark chapter 2, um, and we'll be looking at verses 18 to 28. And it'll be on readjusting expectations. That's the title of the sermon tonight. You'll see how that plays in 
in a little bit, but that's what we're going to be covering tonight. So if you would, please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We'll start reading in verse 18. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Mark writes this, And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the attendants of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise that patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear um, occurs, uh, results, sorry. And, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along with uh, a long while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God around the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for uh, just the words of Jesus that we have recorded for us. And as we, as we see his encounter with the religious leaders and John's disciples this evening, we pray that, Lord, you would help us to understand more of what you have for us to learn from your word. Uh, we pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand. May you be honored as a result of our study this evening. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, years ago, before Yelp, I was about to have lunch with some pastor friends, and we were trying to figure out where we should go. And there were some recommendations thrown out, some of our usual spots. And a new restaurant came to our attention, and it was a, a hole in the wall. A hole in the wall in Daly City. Pass it all the time. Doesn't really look that great. And one of my pastor friends was a little more skeptical. He's like, is that restaurant really good, though? Like, I know that our friend said it was a good place to go, but is it really good? And one of the older pastors I was with, he said this. He, he said, well, you know, it must be good because nobody recommends bad food to other people, right? Now, of course, there are exceptions to the rule, right? There are some people who maybe, you know, we don't trust their palates. We don't trust their, 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 uh, their, their taste buds. Uh, but it's really interesting how... There, how we have a need, even, even before Yelp, how we had a need to have reviews of restaurants. Right? Why do we want reviews? We want reviews because we want to know what we're getting into. Right? How much money is this going to cost me? But more importantly, more importantly, we want to set 
our expectations. And we want to properly set our expectations so we can have the maximum amount of enjoyment. Right? If it's a hole in the wall, it's cheap eats, then it's like, all right, well, if it's not like the most amazing food in the world, I'm not going to complain if it's like greasy. Right? As long as it's good, it'll be fine. Right? We want to set our expectations so we can enjoy what's in front of us. When it comes to the identity of the Messiah, good religious Jews would have had a general idea of what they should expect. They knew that he was going to come in the midst of persecution. Because of Daniel's 70-week prophecy, they knew that he was supposed to come around the time uh, that, uh, that John the Baptist was doing his ministry. So they were waiting. They were expecting some sort of Messiah figure to come. They knew a lot of things about Messiah, and yet there was still a lot of things about Messiah that was either missed or misunderstood for one reason or another. So they had all these expectations built up about who Messiah was going to be. They thought that they knew what they were getting into, but when he came, they didn't recognize him. Now, I want to make it clear that this too, right, them not recognizing Messiah when he came, was all part of God's sovereign plan. Because it's in Messiah's rejection that Jesus goes to die on the cross for our sins as our substitute. Right? That's the only way that it happened. So that, that too was a part of God's plan. But the misconceptions that surrounded Messiah about who he would be, what he would do, um, and how the people would respond to them, that led to expectations being placed on Jesus that were ultimately unmet. And as a result, the challenges that they brought to him were all meant to expose him as a fraud. Why did they keep on coming to him? They wanted to discredit his ministry. They wanted to show that Jesus can't be Messiah. He doesn't look like Messiah. He doesn't look like Messiah. He doesn't act like Messiah. Sure, there are some wondrous things about him, but he cannot be Messiah because it doesn't match up. He's a fraud. He's a pretender. All because they have these certain expectations of him And when they looked at his life, they're like, your life does not match up with what I think Messiah should look like. And so we're going to look at two of those incidences tonight, this evening, that readjust expectations of holiness. And that ought to cause us to be thankful for the gospel. Two incidents that readjust expectations of holiness that ought to cause us to be thankful for the gospel. The first incident that we're going to look at is the fasting question, followed by the question of the Sabbath. So two incidents that show us why we need to be thankful for the gospel. The first incident is the fasting question. The fasting question. Verse 18 says this, and John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? You see, this group that comes to Jesus is a rather unusual group because John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees normally would not have much to do with one another. They're not exactly the best of friends. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist is baptizing in the wilderness, right? And when he saw the scribes and the Pharisees lining up for baptism, he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping 
with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Those aren't exactly friendly words from John the Baptist, are they? Basically, he's saying to them, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. You don't love God. You're just a bunch of snakes. You say that you're the children of Abraham, but that's all you are ethnically. You don't love God, really. If you love God, really, let your actions prove it. Otherwise, judgment is yours. That's what John was saying. If you didn't understand it from, from when I just read it. That is the sternest warning possible to the scribes and Pharisees that tells them your outward deeds of righteousness are nothing. They're nothing. If you were truly repentant of your sins, you need to continue to demonstrate in your lives that you really love God. That your deeds back up your words. That you actually live with heart change. Not just talk about heart change, but you live with heart change. And if, you, if that change doesn't happen, then God's judgment awaits. Right? So, obviously, with those lines drawn in the sand, John the Baptist and his followers were not really friends with the Pharisees. And it's clear that John the Baptist saw these Pharisees as a part of that religious system that continued to lead people astray because of their legalism. So they're supposed to be not friends. But the fact that John's disciples were there with this group of Pharisees back in Mark 2 is still curious because they're actually not really fans of Jesus either, which is curious because John has said previously to his disciples in John 1 that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 3.26, even though John had identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John's disciples come up to John, jealous for him, and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. And you can read more of their exchange and and John's response uh, later in in John chapter 3. But basically, instead of, of... having a good view of Jesus, instead of desiring to follow after Jesus and to worship Jesus, they're saying to John, look, I know you said that he's some special person who takes the sins away from from the world, but he's, he's taking all the people away from you. He's baptizing more people than you. John, we need to figure out how we can get our numbers back on board, on, on track. You know, he wasn't actually saying that, but that was kind of the idea, right? Jesus, John, you're losing popularity to Jesus. That can't happen. That shouldn't happen. They were jealous for John the Baptist's reputation, for his fame. And John the Baptist, though he did have a moment of doubt at a certain point, 
reassured them that that's how it was supposed to be, that he was the messenger who went before the king, right? Making way, telling people, the king is coming. He says those famous words, he must increase and I must decrease. John, John the Baptist understood where his place was. He understood that Christ was the Messiah. And yet, somehow, for whatever reason, his disciples still didn't really get the message. At least some of them didn't. Some of them didn't. And so, all of this to say, the acceptance of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, by John's disciples was not very, it was not given readily. It was not given readily. It was not easy for them to do that. And so when they came to confront Jesus along with the Pharisees, it's an odd partnership, but we kind of understand why, right? Because they, they kind of don't trust Jesus. Now, going back to Mark 2, 18, the question that this strange group brings to Jesus is an interesting one. They notice that Jesus' disciples do not fast unlike them. And they're like, okay, well, why is that? Right? Why is that, Jesus, that, uh, you, that you guys don't uh, fast like we do? Now, the practice of fasting in the Old Testament was uh, actually, there's only one law that really, that, that really prescribed fasting, and that's found in Leviticus. So fasting in the Old Testament law, right, the first five books of, uh, of the Old Testament, um, it was only commanded once. And it happened on the Day of Atonement, right? And the Day of Atonement was, was the sacrifice that occurs one time a year that covers all of the sin that's not covered by the other offerings that were for unintentional sin and, uh, and guilt offerings. Right? This covers all of those, those other sins. And it's a once-a-year kind of sacrifice. And so that, that fasting that happens at the Day of Atonement was a time of reflection, that was meant to cause the people to think about what they've done during the year and to confess that sin to the Lord and repent. In a very similar way, it's kind of like how like this upcoming Sunday when we have communion, we have a time for us to examine our own lives or to uh, confess sin before the Lord before we take communion. Now, eventually, other fasts were, were added into Jewish life, uh, not necessarily as law, but really as tradition. There, there were fasts of lament over national tragedies, fast in times of crises, and fast that people could choose to do for personal reasons. Now, by the time of Jesus' day, the Pharisees added voluntary fasts that occurred on Mondays and Thursdays, right? So when we hear, uh, when we hear that story about that, uh, that Pharisee and the tax collector and that Pharisee's pumping himself up and, and, and talking about how good he is when he says, I fast twice a week, right? That's a voluntary fast that he chooses to do. And that's one of the, way, the reasons why he thinks that he is so holy because he does those two, uh, those twice a week fasts. And it's these twice a week fasts that the Pharisees were doing, that John the Baptist's disciples were doing. And they were like, wait, Jesus, if this is like, the epitome of holiness, if this is the definition of holiness, if this is what holy people do, why don't your disciples fast? Right? Why don't your disciples fast? And so Jesus answers this question with three illustrations, right? Three illustrations. The first one, the first illustration he gives is that of a wedding, that of a wedding, Mark 2, 19. 
And Jesus said to them, can the attendants of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will, then they will fast in that day. And so in this illustration, Jesus brings people to the scene of a wedding. And in Jewish culture, weddings are typically for an entire week. Right? You think you guys get tired after going to a wedding and you spend all day there from, you know, what, 4 a.m. to like, you know, 10, 30, 11 p.m. at night? You think that's tiring. Can you imagine partying all week long? The whole village shuts down for you. But there's all this partying going on. Right, that's, that's tiring, right? but it's, all, it's so festive too, though, right? There's, there's feasting, there's singing, there's dancing, and there's a lot of fun as, as people gather together to celebrate the marriage of two people, right? How God brought two individuals together and made them one. And the attendants of the groom, right, those are basically the groomsmen, Right? They're responsible for making sure that this wedding goes on without a hitch. Right? Quite the opposite of what happens now, because in, mod- in, in our modern weddings, most of the groomsmen just don't do anything except for plan the bachelor party and then just make sure that, that the groom is taken care of on the day of. Right? Usually the bridesmaids do all the work. Quite an- Anyways, social commentary aside. Um, they were responsible for all of this, though. Right? The, the attendants of the groom were responsible for all of this. And so since they were responsible for all of it, they were supposed to be the ones who were trying to make sure that everyone is having fun, that everyone is celebrating. Failure to provide and to make sure that all the details, uh, all the details went smoothly would bring great shame, not to the attendants of the groom, but to the groom, which is why. Think back to John 2. When they ran out of wine, Jesus' mother goes up to Jesus and says, hey, they're out of wine. You got to do something. Because she doesn't want that shame to fall upon the groom and that family. So these groomsmen, right, they're there to try and make sure that everything goes off without a hitch, that everyone's having fun, and everyone's celebrating if they were mourning during that time, right, if, or if they were fasting during that time, very cont- contemplative, acting as if they were in mourning, that would have been completely inappropriate. That's not the time for this. And that's not the time for this. So in this illustration, where Jesus is the bridegroom, he's the, he's the groom, it's not time for his disciples to fast. He's still with them. He's still in their presence. They are to rejoice in their fellowship with him. They are to learn from him. They are supposed to spend time with him. This is not a time for fasting, but Jesus does acknowledge there will be a time. There will be a time where he will be taken away from them. Even that verb, taken away, it's, it's, it carries this idea of being forcibly removed from their presence. And it's during that time when Jesus is forcibly removed from their presence, that's when fasting can come. Right? That's when fasting is appropriate because they're waiting for him to come back. But until that time, fasting is not appropriate. Now, it can be tempting to make this entire discussion all about fasting. But the practice of fasting, right, the question about fasting, is merely the surface level issue. It's only the presenting issue. Because at the heart of this question to Jesus 
is the question of why Jesus and his disciples are not acting like holy people should act. Jesus, you're supposed to be holy. You said earlier when you healed the paralytic that you have the power to forgive sins. And if you're supposed to be so holy, why don't you look like us? Why are you not holy like us? Why are you not doing the things that make you a better believer in God? And that is the essence of legalism. And that is the essence of legalism. Legalism can take two forms. The first, the first form, the first way that we normally think about legalism is in the context of salvation. Right? If people don't follow Jesus in a particular way, then they are not Christians. And that's one form of legalism. That's typically what we think of. Right? So if someone says to us, you're being legalistic, we're like, no, we're not. We're not being legalistic. You can believe whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. As long as you believe in Jesus the right way, I'm not saying that you're not saved. That's one form of legalism. But the other form of legalism, a legalism that is actually a little more frequent in our circles, is a legalism of practice. A legalism of practice. If you do not do what I do, if you do not believe what I believe, if you don't hold to the doctrines that I hold to, if you do not value what I value, you are an immature Christian. You're not holy. You're not biblical. And that is the legalism that the Pharisees and the disciples of John were trying to put on Jesus. Jesus, you don't fast. You don't fast. You're not holy. Right? You can't be the son of you can't be the son of God. You can't, or actually, sorry, you can't be the son of man. Or you, can't you can't be Messiah. You're not holy. And Jesus counters these accusations with the second and third illustrations. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an, un on an old garment. Otherwise, that patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And so in these two illustrations, Jesus is drawing the dividing lines between the legalistic systems of, of Judaism and what he was preaching. Right? His proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God. And it was completely different. See, the Pharisees taught that you can be righteous through your deeds and through your effort. And through your deeds and through your effort, you can be holy. Jesus taught that you can only be righteous, you can only be holy if you have faith in God and you repent of your sins. You cannot pair these two incompatible doctrines together and make it work. They're opposed to each other. Right? There will be a tear. That illustration of the cloth, right? we're, we're a little more familiar with this, although to be honest, maybe not so much anymore. Because it used to be, and I'm not, now I'm going to sound like an old man here. I am an old man, by the way. But it used to be, when you bought clothes, there were no holes in them. Now, when people want to buy clothes, they're looking for holes. And not only that, you pay more for it. And that's a fashion choice. But anyways, <laughs> I told you, I'm an old man. <laughs> right? But see, the thing is, when you put a patch on a hole, when you put a patch on a hole, 
you don't want to put some unshrunk cloth on that patch, on that hole, because when you wash it, what happens when you dry it, right? It's going to shrink. And when it shrinks, it's going to pull that fibers, it's pull that thread, and it's going to make that tear bigger. It's not going to work, right? The wineskins is actually something a little more unfamiliar to us because we have bottles, right? We have glass bottles, we have plastic bottles. Um, but wine used to be stored in uh, containers made from animal skin. It's really interesting uh, how they did that. Um, basically, they, like, took the leather around, the, like, the, the leg area. So that's, like, a, the leg is the natural, like, neck of the, of, of the container. And then they just kind of sew the bottom uh, so that the wine could go in. And they would pour that wine into that container so that it could age a little bit. But naturally, when you age the wine, when that wine begins to ferment, there's gas that builds up inside the little, the little wine container, right? the wine skin. And since it's leather and it's a little fresher, right, when that gas builds up, it kind of inflates a little bit like a balloon. Right? It has some give because it's more elastic. Right? So it's okay. But as you guys know, Leather over time. Let's also just think about it this way. They're, they're in Israel, right? It's hot in Israel. It's dry in Israel. What happens over time? The leather begins to dry. It loses its, its elasticity. So what would happen if you poured new wine into that more brittle skin? Right? As the gas builds, that wine skin tries to stretch, and then it can't anymore, so that it goes kablow, and the wine is on the floor. So Jesus, in giving these illustrations, right, he's not trying to give advice about how you ought to sew your clothes or, or how you should properly store wine because people would have known that already. Right? That's not his point. Rather, he's trying to make it abundantly clear that the old system of the Pharisees, right, the old system of the Pharisees, their standard of holiness was wrong. It was wrong from the very beginning. It led people astray. It is incompatible with what is now present, with what he is now preaching. So his disciples would not fast like the Pharisees did or like, the, like John's disciples did because that was not the measure by which someone's relationship with God would be judged. And so in this first incident, Jesus readjusts the expectations of holiness by reminding people that your holiness isn't determined it's not demonstrated in fasting. And that, this, this readjusting of our expectations or, or of their expectations ought to cause us to be thankful to our Lord because our standing before him is not determined by our deeds. That should make you thankful. Right? That our, righteous, our righteousness, right? the, the, the amount of holiness that, that God sees when he looks at us is not determined by our own ability to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. To, it's not determined by how much we read this book every day and how much of it we read every day. Or how much you pray for other people throughout the week. Or how much you come here or how many ministry hats you wear while you are here. Your, your righteous standing before God is not determined by any of that. It's determined by Christ's righteousness. 
the righteousness that God gave you when you believe. That's what determines your righteousness before God. Granted, there are certain aspects of our faith and our walk with God that should be similar. We should see certain things uh, that are the same in each one who loves Christ. But the specifics, the specifics of how we live out our faith might look a little different, and that's okay. It might look a little different, and that's okay. So long as we're not in violation of God's word when we differ in our beliefs and when we differ in our practices. By God's grace, we are saved. By God's grace, when he looks at us, he doesn't see the long rap sheet of sins that we've committed that have earned for us eternal death. Rather, when he looks at us, he sees the absolute righteousness of Christ, all by God's grace, all by faith. And that's something to be thankful for. That holiness is not determined by that. The second incident that readjusts expectations of holiness is the question on the Sabbath. The question on the Sabbath. Mark 2, 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So this is a separate incident. This is not like back-to-back incidents. There's a, there's a little bit of time in between these incidents. And Mark doesn't tell us how much time. It's not his purpose. Uh, basically, the way that Mark writes his gospel, is, it's kind of like a newsletter. It's just bam, 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 bam. That's why one of his favorite words, if you pick up on it while you're reading through, through the book of Mark, is immediately, immediately, immediately. Like he's really trying to get this narrative out. Um, so it's a separate incident but Jesus and his disciples, they're going through, they're going somewhere. We don't know where they're going. We just know that they're walking through a grain field and they're confronted by the Pharisees over a Sabbath violation. Over a Sabbath violation. Now, you may remember that observing the Sabbath is something that Israel was, in fact, commanded to do, right? It's a little different than fasting because fasting was only given once as a command and then there were some other things that kind of came up as remembrances, but this is an actual command that everyone had to observe or you die, right? and you literally would die for, um, for breaking the Sabbath uh, back when they were wandering. In Exodus 20, 8 through 11, God tells the people through Moses, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So as Another way to remind the people to worship God in all aspects of their, li- of their lives, the command to observe the Sabbath was given to, to the people of Israel to help them remember God just by setting aside a day in the week to rest and to really focus in on God. You're supposed to worship him in all aspects of your life, right? but this is a dedicated day for us to worship God. It's not randomly prescribed, but as you even saw, it's couched in creation, right? This last verse 
verse 11, it's couched in creation. We're mimicking what God did as, uh, as we're resting, and we're remembering him as we're doing that. Okay, so that's the reason why people were supposed to rest. And so the issue that many people ran into is not should we observe the Sabbath, but how. How do we observe the Sabbath? What does it mean for us to rest on the Sabbath? What is our definition of work? Now, God provided some general guidelines as to what work is, but he didn't lay out every single instance of what work looks like in life. And so the religious leaders of Israel, they, they, they wanted to help protect the people from sinning, from uh, from abusing the Sabbath, from working on the Sabbath. So they decided to fill in the gaps of what describes work. They wanted to make sure that they left nothing to chance in their observance of the Sabbath. So 39 laws were written specifically on what is work and what is not work. What can you do on the Sabbath day and what can you not do on the Sabbath day? What are those 39 things? Well, I'm not going to go through all 39, but I'll, I'll, I'll show you some of them. What were the, the violations that they were accusing Jesus' disciples? Uh, well, one, the first thing actually could have been how far Jesus and his disciples were traveling. They even, they even counted up to the step. How many steps would constitute work? Now, they gave you like a little limited radius, but once you got beyond that radius, right? I, I believe it was 1,999 steps. Once you got to 2,000, you're done. Right, 2,000, that's work. You violated the Sabbath. Right, so it could have been that, but they probably didn't accuse Jesus' disciples of violating the Sabbath for travel because they themselves were following Jesus, right? watching him, trying to see when he would slip up. So it probably wasn't that one, but Mark zeroes in on the, how the disciples were picking the heads of the grain and eating them. Now, the eating of the grain from the field, it sounds weird to us, right? Because we don't just walk into somebody's garden and pick off, you know, their lemons and their apples and, and their berries off. You know, we, we don't just do that, right? Because that's like, hey, you're trespassing. You're trespassing. But in Deuteronomy 23, 25, you see that God actually gave travelers a means by which they can eat a little bit while they're traveling. Um, and, and so, you know, there weren't really a lot of paved roads. So sometimes as you're traveling, going from place to place, you would pass through someone's field. And if you're passing through someone's field and you're feeling weak and, and you need some food, God said that it's actually okay for you to just pick up a head of grain, rub it in your hands, and then eat the seed. You can do that. It's free food. You don't got to pay for it. So long as you don't abuse it and you're like, oh, free food? Great. And you just take a sickle and you rip through the whole, whole you know, bunch of grain and, and then you just take it home and you're like, ha ha, free food, I don't want to pay for it. So this is a provision. This is okay. Right? This is okay to just grab some and just eat a little bit on your way. And that's a provision that God gave in graciousness because there's no roadside restaurants. Right? It's not like you're driving down the five and you have In-N-Out and Taco Bell, McDonald's and whatever. Right? You don't have that. This is what you have. And so this is a, a, a grace, a compassion that God allows for people who are traveling. So eating the grain while traveling is not the problem. And we're not even talking about hand washing either. Right? There was a particular way that you had to wash your hands as well. The problem for the Pharisees is, the, is in the actions of the disciples. In picking the grain, right? just in picking the grain off the stalk, 
the disciples were guilty of reaping on the Sabbath, harvesting on the Sabbath, in rubbing the grain between their fingers to remove the husk and the shell of the, of, of the grain so that they can get to the seed inside, the disciples were guilty of threshing on the Sabbath. In throwing away all that useless chaff that they just got in their hands as they were, as they were um, getting rid of the, the husk um, and the shell, the disciples were guilty of winnowing on the Sabbath. And in eating the grain, the disciples were guilty of preparing a meal on the Sabbath. That's four violations. All in just going, pick, rub, throw, eat. Four violations. If that's not the definition of nitpicking and splitting hairs, I don't know what is. And remember, this is not just the Pharisees accusing Jesus' disciples of Sabbath violations, but they're putting that on Jesus too, right? Your disciples do this, which means that you're responsible for them because you allowed them to do it. And Jesus' response to the Pharisees puts them in their place immediately. Oh, this is so rich. Verse 25. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God around the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Now, technically, we could have read all the way to the end of the chapter, but I wanted to break it into pieces so that you can, understand, you can better understand what Jesus is getting at. First, when he says, have you never read? Right? Remember who he's saying this to. He's saying this to the Pharisees. Right? These are, like, these are the, the really, really, really holy people in the society. Right? They knew their Bibles. They studied it well. And yet, and yet, though they read their Bibles faithfully, though they studied their Bibles faithfully, they still failed. They still failed to understand what God was telling them. They still failed to understand God's point. They latched on to the parts that made the most sense to them. They made rules about those lessons and then they imposed those rules on everyone else to make them believe the same thing. And in failing to comprehend God's will, to comprehend the authorial intent, the Pharisees missed the whole point of why God gave them his word in the first place. They just used it to build up their legalistic system. They lacked understanding. Now, as Jesus gets into the examples, into the details, sorry, of David's life, you'll find it in 1 Samuel 21, 1-6. And what he's referencing here is found in 1 Samuel 21, 1-6. And he really wants them to understand what's happening there. Now, we don't have time to break down the entire story, but I want to highlight some very important points. So when, when David goes into that, the house of God, he's on the run from Saul. He's on the run from Saul. This is after, uh, after Saul threw the spear at him and tried to kill him, right? And then David meets Jonathan in the field, um, and then David knows he's got to run, right? So David's on the run. This is right after that, right? And he's on the run. He's got no food. And so he goes to the priest, and he goes, I, hey, I, we're, we're in desperate need. We need food. We've got nothing. And there's some twisting of the truth here and there, but basically, you know, he was right about that. And 
There was nothing left in the temple except for the holy food, the, the showbread, the food that, the bread that was, that was uh, consecrated as holy before the Lord, and it was only supposed to be for the priests to eat. And the priests were supposed to eat it. And they weren't supposed to throw it in the fire. They weren't supposed to do anything else with it except for eat it because it was theirs and it was holy. Now, the priest at the time um, was um, Ahimelech. But we see here that Jesus attributes it to the time of uh, Abithar. And that's okay, even though you know, they're two different people. Because biblically, we do see a pattern where if there are two high priests at the same time, um, or around the same time, the one who just left office is still considered active. You see that later in Jesus' life, um, but we'll get to that at another time. But there's no problem here in terms of, uh, of uh, Jesus uh, mentioning or attributing the time to Ab- Abathar. Um, so, um, anyways, returning to Mark 2, Jesus wants the Pharisees to recognize that God's laws, right, he, the, the showbread being only for the priests to eat, is not the end all. Right? Some of these laws are not just there for the sake of laws. They provide instruction, they provide guidance, but they're not unmovable. There is room for exceptions, there is room for grace. And that's what Ahimelech recognized when he said, I don't have any food for you. All the food's gone except for this consecrated bread. And basically, he said to David, As long as these guys have been, uh, are pure, as long as they're sexually pure, They've not been with a woman lately, then they can eat this bread. And David's like, well, we're on the run, so yeah, we're, nothing's happened. And so, so the priest's like, okay, fine, you may have this bread. And so if, we, if we're tying back, why does Jesus bring up this illustration as he's talking to the Pharisees about the claims that his disciples broke the Sabbath? Jesus' point is that, yes, we are to observe the Sabbath, we are to keep it holy, that is true, but... Keeping the Sabbath is not an end unto itself. It's not an end unto itself, right? Because refusing to do good to someone or to care for someone on the Sabbath because it's work is not what the Sabbath was given. Uh, it's not what it was given for. That, that, it wasn't just so that people would just like stay home and do nothing. Right? The purpose of on the Sabbath was to help people worship the Lord. It was never meant to be like, oh, well, you know, I would love to help you, but if I, if I go over to your house to help you, well, one, I can't because, well, it's work, but two, like, I, if I take my 2001, uh, my 2000 step at your house, I'm in violation of the Sabbath, so sorry. Or I, I can't feed you today because uh, there's, there's, you know, I, I can't prepare any food for you. That, that wasn't at all God's intention for the Sabbath is to facilitate worship, to make sure his people didn't forget. And it's for this reason Jesus wraps up his answer to the Pharisees by saying, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus wants the Pharisees to recognize that the Sabbath is a gift. It's a gift of rest and an opportunity for God's people to worship the Lord. It doesn't exist to be served for its own sake. The Sabbath is not another form of God. God isn't trying to make life harder for people. We might think that sometimes. We might feel like that sometimes. But God is not in the business of making your life harder. Well, I mean, he wants you to be holy, and that is hard in and of itself. But that's beside the point. What the Pharisees were doing, though, in their 
life and in their teaching was they were putting rules and regulations on the people, right? Rules and regulations that they themselves could not bear. And they didn't, by the way. They took the good command of God, and in their attempt to obey God, they went farther than God intended them to in how they tried to obey him. They put hedges around the law so that people would not violate, uh, so that people would not violate the law and they would not sin. But eventually, if you got close to the hedge or if you even touched the hedge, that would be seen as a violation too. And that, of course, is not the takeaway that God wants his people to have. But that's what they made it. And so rather than focusing on the particulars of what they can and cannot do, God wants his people instead to enjoy and worship him on the Sabbath. That was his intent. That was the intent that the people missed. They were so focused on making sure that they observed all the do's and don'ts that they forgot that this is about worship. I mean, you couldn't, if you dislocated your hand. You couldn't even put it back in place on the Sabbath. That's work. That's a violation. That's how twisted the system was. And as a Bible-believing, teach, Bible Bible-teaching church, this is the danger that we can run into. We can try and protect people from sinning or being hurt from the consequences of sin by providing principles and restrictions to them. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. But it can become overbearing and wrong for us to do so if a violation of the hedge is seen as a violation of God's standard of right and wrong. And I say that to you, not to make any of you feel bad, not to kick at some of you or to stab some of you in the back, but I say that because this is the temptation for every church that is a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. Because we want to honor the word well, and that's a good thing. But sometimes we get a little overzealous. Sometimes we get carried away. And we make sin the things that are not sin. Now, if you're in the position where people have been confronting you and telling you that you're possibly in sin, don't view this as a free pass. Right? Don't view this as, see, I knew there was a problem with this church. I knew my disciple was being too judgmental and too crazy. This is not a free pass for you either. Because if they're seeing something, there's probably some truth to it, and you have to reflect on that. Right? Don't give yourself a free pass. Ask yourself, is, do, do, do I want to worship God? Do I want to honor God in my life? Or do I want to pursue my lusts? Do I want to pursue my desires? And so I'm not giving anybody a free pass here by saying that. But I do want to warn us as a church that has come, that has a history of legalism. I want to warn us to be careful when it comes to how we encourage one another to pursue after the Lord. How we encourage one another to pursue holiness, even how we evaluate holiness in another person's life, right? Godliness in another person's life. Godliness is not determined by how faithfully you attend Friday night. It is not determined by whether you also do something midweek and also serve on Sunday. Now, I was talking to somebody about this 
uh, the other day. And this person was, was struggling and wrestling with the idea of what does it mean to be a faithful member of the church? Right? Because in the church covenant, oh, sorry, this is not our church. It might be in our church covenant, but uh, in the church covenant, there were requirements of, uh, to the best of your ability, that you're here every Sunday. To the best of your ability, you're participating midweek. To the best of your ability, you're praying for other people. To the best of your ability, right, you get the picture. And this person was, was asking me, how can I do that faithfully if I have a job? Or how, how can I be faithful, a faithful member, an active member in the church if I have a job and that job takes me out of church? And I, was trying, and I was trying to comfort him, and I was trying to say to him, you know, in the covenant, it does say, to the best of your ability. Right? And so, so as, as long as you are making an effort when you are available to go to church and to be active in other people's lives, you are not in violation of that covenant. Right? I know some of you, you don't have regular schedules. You don't have Monday through Friday jobs like the rest of us. Sometimes you work weekends. Sometimes you have to miss church, and that's okay. Right? You're not any less a church member. You're not any less a Christian because your workplace makes you work on a Sunday, makes you miss Friday nights. Or you're not any less of a believer because of that. And so, so because of that, I want to encourage you all to reevaluate how we look at other people, how we think about other people uh, when it comes to holiness, when it comes to you know, whether they're faithful whether, um, and, and whatnot. Because right? if, if we say that the violation is something that's more preferential or something that works for us but maybe doesn't work for other people, right? we're, we're guilty of putting burdens on them that, that God wouldn't put on them. We can be guilty of assuming heart motives on somebody Accusing them of sin when maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe that wasn't the deal. Now, again, I'm not saying that it is wrong to provide principles and guidelines and accountability to help other people pursue Jesus. I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to confront others and, and to, to lovingly confront others and, and to tell them, hey, this is what I'm observing in your life. What do you think about that? What do you, what do you think God would say if he saw you doing that? And maybe not in as, you know, confrontational or not, well, confrontational language, yes, but maybe not as strong of, of those terms, but it's not wrong for us to do that, right? That's what we do for one another. That's what we do as the body, right? As, as accountability, that's what we should do for one another. We should strive to do that. So I'm not saying it's wrong for us to do that. However, I do want us to be aware of the fact that the potential for abuse of that kind of power that kind of influence in one another's lives is certainly present in situations like these when principles and hedges are constructed around the objective truth of the word of God. And it is in these moments, it is in these moments that we have to recognize that Christ, not the principles, not the preferences, that Christ is Lord. Right? He is Lord over the Sabbath. Right? Those principles that the Pharisees constructed to make sure that no one would violate the Sabbath, that was not, in and of itself, the thing that needed to be obeyed. 
who they should have been focusing on is God. Not their preferences. Not their idea of what work is and what work isn't. Jesus is Lord over all of that. So he is the one who deserves the attention. He is the one who deserves the focus. Right? Think of it in our day. Right? Being sober-minded does not mean that it is sin for you to drink alcohol. If you like a glass of wine with your steak or with your fish, as long as it's in moderation, as long as you are in control, that's fine. You can take it. Paul even says to Timothy, don't just drink water, drink some wine. Granted, there are problems with the water. That's why he told him to drink the wine. But he said that. Right? So for us to say, like, no, 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 if you're a good Christian, don't you dare drink alcohol. How dare you drink that hard seltzer? How dare you? How You drink kombucha? Oh, my goodness. Violation. Jesus is Lord over all of that. Jesus is Lord over all of that. And as we strive to be holy before the Lord, we all have to be mindful that everything that we do is done in worship to Jesus. Do it to the glory of Christ. Do it to the glory of God. Jesus should be, first and foremost, our priority. And that priority is not in the priority for Christians is not what we are to run away from. The priority for Christians is who we are to run to. Right? In Christianity, the priority is not what you are to run from. It is who, are, who you are to run to. That is our priority in everything. Worshiping Christ is everything to us. This evening, we took a look at two different incidents that readjust our expectations of holiness, which should cause us to be thankful for the gospel. As we looked at that fasting question, well, we're thankful that God doesn't determine our righteousness by our ability to fill out a spiritual achievement card. Our righteousness was given to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. When we looked at the question of the Sabbath, we saw that a strict adherence to God's law is not God's point either. There's room for compassion. There's room for exceptions. He gave us his word so that we might live in righteousness. Yes, but at the end of the day, obeying him is more important than our preferences. We can be grateful for the grace that God gives us and calls for us to display to others, even when it comes to Christian liberties. And so let us be grateful. Let us be thankful knowing that the holiness that we have been given is not gain from man's broken system of works-based righteousness. But the holiness that we've been given has been given to us by grace, through faith, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yes, there is, a, there is still an expectation that we all live righteous before God. And yes, that is work. And yes, that means that you will have to learn to die to self, that it will be hard. It means all of those things. But that holiness that we have, it's from Christ. We're still in progress, but praise be to God that he empowers us to get there. He doesn't say, ah, it's figured out. Good luck to you. I'm glad I'm not in your shoes. That's not what he says. He's the one who empowers us. You remember what what Paul tells us in Philippians, right? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 
that, brothers and sisters, is the thing that ought to bring you joy. Not the fact that you have to do all these performative things to be righteous. But the fact that God himself is going to be the one working in you and through you to get to where he wants you to be. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. We're so grateful. That the righteousness that you gave to us is free. It's free to us. We're grateful, Lord, that you do not evaluate and judge our standing before you based off of how good of a Christian culturally we are. We know that we fail. We know that we have a lot of work to do when it comes to getting closer and closer to Jesus, to to grow in sanctification. We know that. And yet, there is no fear. There is no fear that we will ever be cut off because we don't make the cut because of your grace. Because of the fact that those you save, you will not let go. And with that confidence, we pray that, Lord, you would help us to grow ever closer to you. And that you would also protect us from ourselves. From our own tendencies. To add extra to the word. From our own tendency to be legalistic. Or, for some of us, to disregard any kind of standards at all. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to grow more in your word, to grow more in Christ. Your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your attention. Um, we have some discussion questions for you to, uh, to think about and to talk about in your discussion groups. So um, the first question that we have is, uh, in what ways... Can we be in danger of adopting standards of righteousness slash Christian maturity that are legalistic, right? So what are some ways that we can be in danger of basically being legalists? Um, second question is pretty similar, um, but it kind of digs into perhaps some of the heart motive, right? What are some possible reasons why it's easier for us to think more legalistically rather than, to, to think and live more legalistically, rather than to operate in grace. And then the third question is, what are some ways that we can grow in extending God's grace to, towards others? And so these are just some things that uh, I just want you to think about, um, since you know, it is so easy for us to impose our own standards, our own preferences on other people. Um, again, I wasn't trying to target anybody this evening. Um, this is just what was in the text and what I was trying to bring out. And so um, if you do want to talk about, about this a little bit more, though, uh, this, this hits a little too close to home, please come talk to me. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll work it out. All right?